Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Hall. Um, I just want to first of all say that we are still fishing for reviews. So if you can review the podcast, and especially if you've had a question answered by Mike or a topic, um, please do uh, give us a review because it really, really helps the podcast grow. It helps more people learn and get better information because that's what we're trying to put out, good information. So please do that. And you'll also be put into a prize draw for a free ebook giveaway. So there is some benefits to you guys as well. So please do that. Um, I also want to introduce Mike Isratel here for another Q&A or rather the legendary Super Saiyan Mike Isratel for another Q&A. Um, I had to throw that one in there seeing as uh, that is now your official title as far as I'm aware. Um, well, how you doing, that, that does sound nice to hear. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm doing pretty well and uh, can't wait to get to some questions. Uh, I'm, I'm doing great, actually. My training has been really good. My I started dieting, so I'm losing fat right now. And uh, it's kind of cool if you, when you, when you diet after a maintenance phase or uh, like a primer phase, like you say. I think it's one of oh, those yeah. things that like uh, it's uh, you just gain muscle and lose fat at the same time for a while because you're so detrained uh, or so sensitive to growth. So it's actually super trippy to see the results and be like, "Wow, holy crap! Like this is great!" And then. You know, uh, by the time that the muscle gain is going to come to an end in a couple of weeks, I'll already be fairly lean. And then that's its own motivator. You know, I find that training when you're already fairly lean is super motivating. because You're like, holy crap, shit, this is actually working. And you you look amazing in the gym and you start seeing new stuff. So it's uh, it's fun. But yeah, so right now I'm training like that. I'm training a lot of jujitsu. Um, I'm, uh, going to be competing at the Arnold classic in jujitsu nice. and just registered for that. And that's scary to fill in uh, all those forms. <laughs> so my, uh, my coach beat me to death yesterday. Uh, that was awesome. It's, uh, so yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in a good place and ready to do awesome. some questions. Brilliant. No, yeah, and I'm glad you talked about the coming out of the primer phase and feeling good because for anyone who is currently in like a maintenance period, is probably feeling a bit crummy like myself and deloading from it. So I'm looking forward to that initial cutting period and also kind of yeah. those, seeing those muscular gains. So yeah, let's get in into those questions. So uh, we've got a ton come through and there's a great number of really, really good ones. So they'll probably take maybe another episode, but we'll get through as many as we can. So we've got one from Steve Marchone, I believe. Um, and he has essentially asked, Mike, how long can you grow using the same load? He said he read before the, that after two weeks of using the same load, the body has adapted and growth stops. Do you agree with this? Mm. So I'd have to make the answer um, it's relative to your level of development. So if you're a beginner, you grow from anything. If you're an early intermediate, two to three years of training, uh, you can use the same load and grow for months. Um, but the growth is going to be pretty asymptotic though. Uh, so it's not going to be super impressive, uh, after a while, but you still get something. And, uh, especially, uh, and if, even if you're relatively advanced, you can go from the same load to a considerable extent if you periodize and progress in other variables. And that's a really key factor. So if you do three by 10 on the squat at 60 kilos, you're going to grow for a couple of weeks as a, an, a, an intermediate. 
and then growth is going to stop and you're just going to maintain. Uh, if you're advanced, you might grow for a workout, provided that that load is overloading for you. And then the next workout, you're going to grow maybe a quarter as much. And the workout after, it's not going to be statistically detectable growth. So that being said, there are other ways to make things more difficult and not just more difficult in an arbitrary way, but in a more productive way that is in the direction of specificity that we want for hypertrophy. So there are numerous other factors for hypertrophy other than the load. The biggest one is volume, actually. So load is secondary to hypertrophy as long as it's heavy enough. So let's say you're using uh, 150 kilos in the squat, and you're an intermediate, and that's you can do four sets of 8 to 10 or something like that. Well, you know, that's a pretty good load. And uh, it's going to be a long time before that load becomes too light. So you can grow for literally months, if not years, using 150K in the squat if you periodize your repetitions, increase your volumes. So it used to be that five sets of 10 at 150K was just going to blast you into the moon for a workout. Mm -hmm. You'll get up to after months and years of eight, nine, 10 sets of 10 at 150K or even more sets of 15, right? And only when 150K is something you can do for 20 reps or more, does it really become not super effective for growth. Even then you can shorten rest times. You can change your um, uh, speed of descent to do super slow eccentrics and paused reps. Just that variation alone with progressive overload in repetitions and volumes uh, within each block of variation for the way you execute the exercise can allow you to get a ton out of just the same weight for even if you're advanced months and if you're intermediate years. That being said, that is uh, similar to asking what are the capabilities of Microsoft Excel 2003? Vast, impressive. But why would you use it if you've got the most modern version available, right? <laughs> it could do more. So, yeah, you can, if you're periodizing other factors, and if you're overloading and coming close to failure, and, uh, and if you're getting a lot of metabolite, uh, uh, especially, and most importantly, if you're using high volumes, you can continue to present overloads if you're progressing in one way or another over a long time. And I'll make an example just really quick to see how this unfolds over the period of a month. 150K in the squat. Let's say four by 10 is a minimum effective volume for you just per workout. We'll keep it super simple. Next workout, you do five by 10. Workout after that, six by 10. Workout after that, seven by 10. That's going to grow you. It's the same mm -hmm. load. Seven by 10 is nothing like four by 10. It's, it's a planet away. So it's going to grow you every single workout. There's a month of growth right there. Next month, 150K, but you do eights instead of tens, and you do super slow eccentrics, three-second eccentric and come up, three-second eccentric and come up. You repeat the same loading paradigm for volumes. After that, next month, you do 12s, regular cadence, but 12s. Start out with 4 by 12, go all the way up to 7 by 12. And you can keep going like that, just a simple example. And you can do other things. You can shorten rest times and stuff like that. These other tricks to throw. But before you even get to them, you can probably do four or five mesocycles alternating between slow eccentrics and regulars and just increase the sets within each mesocycle and between them increase the total rep number per set. And that's still 150K, but it is a noticeably different stimulus. Now, here is another very important question to ask. How much stronger can you get using the same load not much. I mean, you're going to get a considerable amount of hypertrophy, and that's going to transfer to strength. 
but we know that hypertrophy contributes something to strength, but it's, it's not like it does everything for strength. So you'll be pretty jacked. And because you're doing higher and higher reps, you'll be good at high reps, but the transfer of training effects. So for example, if you can do 130 for 10, it gets you a certain amount of actual one RM strength transfer. If you're now do, using the same weight for sets of 20, uh, you have the muscle size to be stronger, but the neural uh, ability to train it is non-existent because the nervous system is trained much more with heavy loads for that mm-hmm. specific task. So yeah, there'll be there'll come a time where you can do 130 for sets of 20 versus the sets of 10 you used to be able to do, but you'll just be like 10% stronger or something like that or 5% stronger. I mean, you doubled your fucking reps. You'd think it'd be a world away, but it's not. You're just specifically good at that. And in mm-hmm. order to – you say, oh, but you have all that muscle. Yeah, but it's useless to you because you haven't trained it nervous system-wise to be used for maximal loads. So you say, well, how do you do that? Well, you got to lift heavy weight. Now, you can move the barbell at a very high rate uh, of, of, of a very fast speed on the concentric especially, and that actually provides a considerable amount of force. You can start jump squatting with it, um, but uh, that's all very second-rate measures to actually loading the bar. So for strength, eh, if you want to get stronger, you just look up. Those weights up there you can't do. That's where you'll be headed eventually. Mm-hmm. If you want to get bigger, you can continue to use similar weights or the same weight, but don't do that. Incrementally put more weight on the bar. So if we got a guy who's only using 130K maximum for two years, he can get pretty big. He can get bigger than he was even if he was using 130K to begin with. But if you got a guy who has enough weights to put on to get to 180K, he's going to be bigger. Not a ton bigger, but bigger. So uh, I, I definitely don't, you know, the two-week thing is nonsense. This is nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't period as your volume, yeah, sure. I mean, if you do three by 10, it stops working two weeks later. But if you do uh, incremental increases in volume and also alter exercise variation techniques, and yeah, I didn't even talk about metabolites. You could do a lot of that. Weeks and weeks and months and months and even years of growth. So I don't, not entirely sure. I'll tell you one example where that actually is useful. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have uh, something like dumbbell lateral raises, you got 10k play or 10k dumbbells and you got 15k dumbbells that's a big ass difference you may do the 10k's for 10 and the 15s you do for 3 who the fuck trains their, their side delts for 3 it's nonsense you're just going to break your shoulders down so you may be forced to use such techniques with and just really grind in those 10k dumbbells until you're just throwing them around for metabolite sets of 30 and then you're ready for 10s with the 15K dumbbells. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's kind of, in a sense, that's, I guess, similar to the, the, almost similar to the double progression model, but it's not quite the same because you're still forcing progression in other aspects. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're forcing progression in repetitions in reserve, a progression in volume, and a progression in repetitions over the long term. So that's triple progression right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, all you could do that without loading. Loading would be another progression. It would be the fourth progression. So three out of four ain't bad, but it's not the best. So I, I guess the sort of sum up the message, if you have to do it, it works. Don't do it if you don't have to, though. You know, for example, if you're at a gym where it's 10K, 10K 11K, 12K dumbbells, which I've actually seen before, use those. That'd be great, right? That's an even better way to grow your shoulders. But if your 10Ks and 15s is all you got, you got to do what it takes. Uh, uh, you know, uh, why do I always thread in rich piano quotes? For <laughs> he doesn't get a fucking, no, he doesn't get to keep that quote. Do what it takes. People have been saying that for years beforehand. I'm taking that shit back. But anyway, you got to do what you are limited with and you can do a good job, a great job, just not the best job with very limited tools.
Brilliant. Yeah, I think just there's so many ways you can progressively overload and people need to kind of use that and periodize with it. I think that's a really, really good good answer and really interesting. So yeah. um, just sorry, real quick, Steve, yeah. if I can just say one more thing for volume. I just want to wave the flag for volume because people will say, I need heavy weights. Like here's a perfect example. You're going on vacation or you're visiting family. And there's just either no gyms around or it's like a hotel gym with 50 with a 20 K dumbbells at the most. Right. And people will say, there's no way I can get a work good workout here. Is there a way you can train sustainably there at your advanced level and continue to progress? No. Is there a way that you can knock out at least a week or two or three of really good workouts? Oh my God. And people go, but how even a couple of sets to failure is not going to do anything. If the, if the weights are super light, who the fuck said anything about a couple of sets, you could have no weight equipment at all. You get unbelievable leg workout that'll leave you crippled for days. Here it is. You ready? You do 150 total bodyweight walking lunges. Here's how you do them. You do them until you build up enough lactate to where it hurts your quads. You don't stop. You only stop when you get ischemic rigor, when you literally get the freezing of the muscles, the excitation contraction coupling doesn't work. You go, oh, fuck, fuck, I can't walk. You wait like two seconds until you clear just enough lactate, and then you keep walking. You count out 150 steps like that, you're already damn near fucked up. And then what you do is you do 50 bodyweight squats with your hands out like this, all the way up and down, slow on the way down, and no rest at the top just like that. And you do them in the same way. As soon as you're almost at failure and go again, you do 50 like that. Fuck. You won't even walk on your vacation. Somebody will have to take a tour of Italy for you. You'll have binoculars in the bus. So you can do fucked up shit and still get amazing workouts with very limited equipment just from using super fucking ridiculous volumes and high proximities to failure. That allows a ton of mechanical work to be done and a lot of metabolite sequestration, both of which fuck you up. You can do that shit for a long time. Is that months and months of good work, good hypertrophy? No. Is it weeks? For sure. Cool. No, yeah, great add-on. Um, I think a lot of people try and I think people try and deload for their whole holidays generally, but if you if you can't deload, just go balls to the wall essentially and really like hit hit the metabolites and uh, train into failure. Um, so next question from Christopher Sobeck. So he's asked for someone who can wants to compete in both bodybuilding and powerlifting, how could you use how could you most how could what's the most ideal structure, sorry? For your season for example doing a bodybuilding show first and then a powerlifting powerlifting meet later and he also said he loves your content cool thanks for the question um i answered this question in a seminar i was recently presenting at think the most important thing you can do is take a time during the year where you're going to be competing in a powerlifting meet or several meets the uh six months later as there's a good idea four months later at the closest three months you want to do your bodybuilding shows so separating the two seasons out is a really 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 good idea because i've seen people try to do a powerlifting meet and then a bodybuilding show the day after or vice versa which is completely insane yeah. and uh it's uh, really really rough and it accomplishes basically you take specificity, the most important training principle right out of the gate. You take it away, which is a real bad idea. I mean, what kind best for preserving muscle mass in a high, you know, in a, in a super high calorie deficit Well, high volume training, enough volume to stimulate your muscles, not to fall off. If you decide to do triples and doubles and lose 15 kilograms, 
you're going to lose all your muscle because there's no stimulus for the muscle to be around. It's damn nearly to your body, to a trained person. Sets of three from a muscular stimulus perspective is basically like almost not training at all. Couple that with a hypocaloric, a huge deficit. Oh my God. You know, I've tried, the funny thing is I tried this before. I tried dieting on threes and fives. I lost all of my strength in a bunch of muscle. And I was like, all right, that was stupid. Never did that again. And, um, you know, how are you going to get ready for a powerlifting meet? How are you going to recover and adapt to these insane loads if you're dieting all the time? Dieting is, feels terrible. There are a lot of molecular things I could talk about. I won't get into a ton of them here, but there's a predominance of catabolic activity in AMP kinase and a bunch of cellular regulators actually make your fast-twitch muscles behave slightly more like slow-twitch muscles. So then, But that's, that's terrible for powerlifting, right? Because fast-twitch mm. muscles produce more force per cross-sectional area than slow-twitch. So you're really taking the shit apart. Now, on the other hand, if you do uh, half a year dedicated to powerlifting, half a year to bodybuilding, there's just only a couple of modifications to make. When you're powerlifting, add in a bit of volume for the muscle groups not covered in your powerlifting training, like do some curls, do some lateral raises, etc. And when you're bodybuilding, make sure you don't stray too far away from the compound heavy basics, squat bench uh, deadlift, or their close derivatives. For too long, maybe for a month before the show you can or whatever, you're too beat up. But even the still, you can keep them in high repetition versions. As long as you do that, those are the best fundamental ways. And then for the periodization stuff, you can run pretty isolated periodization for both powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, just you keep those extra volumes in for the respective sport, and you're good to go. Now, are those volumes going to interfere to some extent? Yeah, absolutely they are. But but to a very minimal extent, and mixing the two together in one competitive season is a giant a giant disaster. So and, and at very high levels, especially where uh, anabolics are involved, you really don't want to do that because when you're that dry for a bodybuilding show, you are a muscle-tearing nightmare. And uh, competing probably the worst possible idea that you'd ever have. Um, one last thing I can say to this is it speaks to the point of if you're going to anoint yourself to compete in two sports, it's a hard thing to do. You're already doing a very hard thing. you got to understand that hardness, the difficulty and the, and the pride you get from it comes with responsibility. And one of the responsibilities is that you can never really get too far out of shape because people say, well, I want to compete lean and in shape as a powerlifter because I have a weight class to make, but I also want to be super lean as a bodybuilder. Well, look, motherfucker, if this is the whole year, if you drew one or the other, you can never really get super sloppy because then there is really no true off season. You know what I mean? Now, you and I are probably of the opinion that there shouldn't be a true off season anyway. It's always either a time to build muscle or a time to lose fat or a time to re you know, recoup the body's resources and heal. But even, you know, it's even more profound when you're doing bodybuilding powerlifting together. Like, you know, as soon as your bodybuilding uh, situation ends and you start powerlifting training, you can't just balloon up out of control because you'll balloon right out of your weight class. So you revert, you know, there was a concept of reverse dieting or whatever, or getting back into the groove of eating normal foods. That has to be a super important part of your game because like if you compete at a certain weight class, I mean, uh, you know, you're, or you're constrained in, in both parts of the year. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a really good answer. And it's not that the, the two can't go together. It's just not necessary. It's like a lot of sports in which there's overlap. You can't necessarily be the best at both at once. You need to kind of separate them as best as you can um, yep. to be the best at both. Um, and kind of, I think it was important that you talked about how if you are going to do it, you kind of focus on those the big three heavy basic lifts. They're very useful for bodybuilders as well. Um, and then just add in some additional areas that obviously don't get hit very well when you are using those big three and concentrating on those. Yep. Yep. Uh, I can get a little bit technical for especially in advanced individuals that do this. I can get a little bit technical in using the, the new terminology I've been uh, creating. 
Um, a, a lot of the isolation moves when you're a power lifter, when you're in your powerlifting phase, a lot of the isolation moves that train your calves, your uh, rear knee and side delts, your biceps, stuff like that, you're going to keep them close to your MV, your maintenance volume, because mm-hmm. you want the most resources freed up for your actual power lifts. So you're going to keep them as little as possible so that they stick around and just don't go anywhere. When your bodybuilding season starts, you can put them back into MEV to MRV, that window, to actually get them to grow. And what you're going to do is you're going to take your power lifts and you're going to put them back down to their MVs, their maintenance volumes. So there's a certain amount of heavy benching, squatting, and deadlifting variations you can do per week that just just enough to not get super fucking weak at them. Because, you know, you sometimes you don't go a long time without – like benching the bar, actual barbell, and you're like, what the fuck is this? And you just suck yeah. at it. There's a certain minimum amount you can do to keep your technical prowess, right? Because your muscle you don't have to worry about as a bodybuilder. You keep all that. But your technical prowess so – you, so for technical proficiency at those lifts, you go down to your MV for technical proficiency. You won't get technically any better at them, but you just won't get worse. And you mm-hmm. could put as many resources as possible into your bodybuilding. A big mistake that people make is they try to train them both evenly throughout the same time throughout the year, and they end up kind of – flirting at the minimum effective volume for both so they don't make a whole lot of gains for either one as opposed to just you know backing off on one really going the other backing off on one really going the other and that step stool kind of thing also allows for a lot of adaptive resistance to 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 decline so if you're only really doing bodybuilding stuff hard half a year that's a lot of great growth half a year you got half a year behind you of your body's like oh what fuck i haven't seen this shit in a long time same with powerlifting. so it's actually a good way to make the best gains by, by making sure you really emphasize de-emphasize and not just have a mixed bag routine all year and i think a lot of people are looking yeah. for that um other individuals have asked this question they're looking for me to say well here's the best way to mix the two in one monthly program and here's how to do it evenly so evenly is already the wrong question. Does that make sense? You yeah. want to come at it from that maintenance volume and uh, MAV for one, maximum adaptive volume for one, maintenance volume for the other when the time is needed when you're not prioritizing them. Cool. And just uh, on a side note, when you are doing the maintenance volume for those power lifts, are you training them in a strength zone or are you putting them specifically to the hypertrophy rep range or maybe even dynamic effort kind of technique based work? Would you go down that line? Where would you place that? Boy, do I have a good answer for you. So when you're in the hypertrophy phase of your bodybuilding training, you are going to take the power lifts and work them in their hypertrophy range. Cool. When you get into a situation where your hypertrophy training for bodybuilding is starting to have to reduce in volume because your diet is grinding you to the bone and you're just reducing your MRV, you're going to switch to strength training with those lifts. So you're going to do your heavy compound lifts in the strength zone just to keep their volumes lower and uh, that way conserving more strength. And then you're going to slap your bodybuilding volumes on top of that. When you get into the last month before a contest, even strength training is probably not the greatest idea. So you go to that dynamic effort work you were talking about, relatively fast reps with lighter loads just for technical purposes. So if you're really uh, if you're bench pressing and it's a chest workout, you can start your workout with maybe 100 kilos for sets of five. Boom, boom, boom off the chest with a pause, full arch and everything. So that never really leaves your abilities. And then you start slamming the dumbbells, high rep, whatever, whatever, just to get the rest of your workout. That makes sense. Cool. No, yeah, really good. Yeah. That that helps a lot, and I think that'll help a lot of people who are very much like the power lifts, but want that bodybuilding focus as well. Even if they're not for necessarily sure. dieting for a show, they just want that there, but they want to grow for maximally. Sure. Cool. 
Um, next question for yourself is from Patrick Johnson. So he's got two questions about finding the minimum effective dose. Uh, so he said, do you have to run two whole mesocycles with the same sets to find the minimum effective dose? Or could you increase the sets towards your ma uh, maximal adaptive volume and then maximal recoverable volume as normal, but start at a different um, minimum effective dose each mesocycle? And he said, and is it very important to find the exact minimum effective dose if you begin each mesocycle in, say, a range of, say, 10 to 14? To the last Set part of his question, sugar. yeah, to the last part of his question, no, not really, but um, it's it's worth investigating because you could be doing, you could be having uh, inadvertently shorter mesocycles if your minimum effective volume, you thought it was 14 sets, but it's really 10. You could be inadvertently shortening your mesocycles by stopping at 20 every time or something where you could have been going for weeks longer. Um, you know, in a, in a, I've actually recently experienced with my back training, you know, it turns out my back actually grows from a little bit less volume than I thought it would need uh, so basically it's mev is actually lower than i thought which mm -hmm. is a, a breath of fresh air because my back needs a lot of healing time so it's really good that it can still grow with lower volumes um and so the second part of this question is yeah it's it's worth it if you get especially more advanced you're going to want to advanced lifters are a really cool area to study because they're so constrained uh, everything affects everything else so what is the real big golden fleece for finding an MEV? It's you, we know the we know a fact. Your your total body MRV is not as big as your sum MRV of all the body parts added together at their own MRVs. If you find the MEVs of all of your training, the true minimum effective volumes, you can compress your training down in the smallest effective dose total. All the MEVs of the individual body parts added together, and that can be well under your total body MRV, and then you can expand it from there. But if you think your MEVs for all your body parts are here, you have to start alternating body parts and putting on one and taking off another and doing a back burner stuff where you might not have to for as many. It's especially important in show dieting because in show dieting, you can't de-emphasize any body parts because you're going to start losing muscle off of them. Mm -hmm. So knowing your MEVs and knowing as low as they possibly are is super critical for contest dieting because you know that at least you got to hit the MEV. Because other than that, you're going to lose muscle, right? So if your MEV you thought was 14 and it's really 10, you're going to run into MRV over and over and over again needlessly where you could be running into it less frequently, still getting good growth, beating yourself up less because you know your MEV is a little bit lower. So I, I think as you get more advanced, yeah, you got to get pretty intimate with where your MEVs are. Um, mm -hmm. Can you – do you have to run two metacycles back-to-back? I think you have to run at least two metacycles back-to-back, possibly more to really track down where your MEV is. MEV is tough to find. It's uh, the more variables you introduce, the harder it is to pick down what your MEV is. So if you alter exercises a whole bunch, it's going to alter that. Mm -hmm. If you alter loading ranges a ton, it's going to alter that. So uh, finding your effective volume is, is going to be uh, a difficult task. Um, uh, you know, one easy sort of shortcut way to do it for some body parts is to rate your workouts on if you thought they were overloading or not. And track your muscle soreness to see if you've got any muscle soreness. And I'll, I'll give you guys a real quick tip. If your workout doesn't feel remotely challenging, and if you didn't get at all sore, both of those are true, it's probably not your minimum effective volume. Minimum effective volume is that first volume at which, when you're climbing up the volume ladder, you go, all right, that was a fucking workout. I got a little sore. I got a little, I felt like it was tough. MEV. Cool. MRV is like, I can't fucking do any more of this or I'm going to die. 
right? And everything in between is great training. But if you come into the gym, you know, like we've all started somewhere else and started, you know, doing other people's workouts, internet workouts. You do a workout and you're like, that's it. That's it. This is fucking absurd. Not your MEV. I promise. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. MEV is something yeah. you can into it pretty well. Combine that with tracking of your numbers, and after a couple of mile cycles, you can start to get a good a good idea for that feeling. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's really helpful. Um, hearing kind of what the indicators for MEV feel like. So it was kind of a tough workout. You got a little bit sore. That's kind of a good indicator that it was your minimum effective dose, and which makes sense because if it was really easy then obviously that's not a minimum effective dose. It's not an effective dose at all. Violates the overload principle. You need some overload for effect. We know that. So if it doesn't feel overloading at all, uh, and it's something you, you know, beginners, it would make no sense to them what feels overloading and doesn't. But more advanced intermediate people, and I know Patrick Johnson is one of these people, you got a feeling for what's a workout and what's not. You know, uh, you know if someone was like, hey, you know, today we're going to do 3 by 10 leg press and 3 by 10 squat. Um, are you going to be like uh, ready to do the same workout tomorrow? Uh, if the answer is yes, it's not your MEV. If the answer is like, mm, no, maybe a day later, maybe maybe two, but definitely not tomorrow, then you know you're getting probably something out of it. Cool. Yeah, brilliant answer. Um, so next question we have from Emma Green, who is a, a client of mine, actually, but I think it's a really interesting question. And I think we may have slightly touched on it before, uh, maybe not, uh, is to do with body fat distribution. And she's saying that a lot of kind of female bikini competitors after they diet down and then put weight back on talk about how the fat can redistribute so it kind of comes on in different places and also we can touch on obviously males as well and I know personally when I dieted for my show and then came back up I was interested in that yeah fat actually kind of redistributed over my body which was kind of strange um have you had personal experience with that is there anything in the literature that covers that sort of thing Mike yeah, so um, there are hormonal influences on diet distribution, and when you burn fat under a certain hormonal milieu, you end up burning it more from some areas than others. When you are back to normal and you start regaining the weight, normally your hormones are pretty normalized, and you gain it just like you always would, but the fat that was burned more start, is in a bigger deficit than the fat that was burned less. So generally speaking, if you're in an environment with a high cortisol production, uh, then I think you store more fat in uh, intra-abdominal regions. Or you, you're less likely to burn intra-abdominal fat, and uh, especially uh, uh, fat around your midsection, than you are to burn fat from your periphery, or you're less likely to burn it there. So you'll, you'll get really peripherally lean on a diet in which you're stressing out a lot and have a high cortisol level, and you're going to have higher cortisol levels in general um and then when you put the weight back on your periphery stays leaner but your core structures may uh, get a little fatter than before or not as fat as before but you thought they'd be leaner up a little bit more um so that's how we tend to see that fat distribution over time uh in if you're on exogenous hormones it changes altogether because with uh androgens you also tend to deposit or burn less intra-abdominal fat than you do subcutaneous fat. So that magnifies that response, which is, uh, but your subcutaneous fat really goes away really well. So I think that's one of the factors in what they call muscle maturity in uh, competition. Oh, yeah. uh, people have been doing uh, training for a long time. When you see a, a junior competitor, they oftentimes they have very small waists. 
but they got they got fat on their hamstrings and their glutes and some on their arms and you're kind of like ah you just like dry glutes at a very young age are very rare mm-hmm. but if you're still competing in your 35 40 45 a lot of those guys have striated glutes and a lot of those guys have ripped everything but they have a little bit more of a belly and they can't do the vacuum pose as well because they have more intra-abdominal fat at that point for females it's kind of the gift and the curse where if you diet chronically over and over and over especially to the bone, normal fluctuations probably don't do a damn thing. But if you're contest dieting, Mm. you're going to find that getting your abs clear and abs in shape and getting a smaller waistline in general can be not any easier show to show, but getting your glutes in shape, your quads in shape can become easier and easier show to show because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say that the way to mitigate that is to try to diet as stress-free as possible, keep your cortisol levels down. And if you start messing around with exogenous hormones, you're just going to get some of that uh, altogether. Um, something that my, my mentor in that regard in the hormone ways actually just interviewed very productively by Lyle himself was uh, Broderick Chavez. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Broderick is a big fan of keeping um, really, really virulent compounds as low as possible and the high engineered, high tech compounds that are designed by pharmaceutical companies not to have a ton of side effects as low as possible. Because he's of the opinion that just high doses of plain testosterone in other really nasty drugs just makes it just from total pharmaceutical load makes your core bigger. <laughs> it gives you that GH gut. And if you don't run an excessive amount of steroids all the time, especially if you run more of them, you run Masteron and some other ones, Prima Bolin, that are much safer, much less um, Uh, effective of that central physiology, then you tend to come out with a better look, especially over the long term, that if you run boatloads of tests, like west side quantities of testosterone, um, and if you run a ton of growth and a ton of insulin, you're going to look like like you're going to have the turtle belly after a while. So that's definitely not good. But for national competitors, I think the most you can do to mitigate that partial effect is to keep dieting as stress-free as possible and don't balloon back up crazy afterwards. And in addition to that, uh, some of the changes in the redistributions are actually pretty cool. And I'll tell you this, you get lean enough, it doesn't matter how you redistribute your body. When you run out of body mm-hmm. fat, the distribution's irrelevant, right? Like you look at a really high-level competitor, um, a natural bodybuilder, uh, you don't have any fat anyway that you can see. So who, who cares where it is? <laughs> yeah. I hope, hope that makes sense. For female competitors, it's more of a thing because their shape is important to them. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's really interesting hearing about because people talk about muscle maturity and it's always to me been a bit kind of it's kind of almost bro sciencey if that's a term you can use for it because sure. it's a bit yeah. confusing but that actually makes complete sense in that yeah muscles end up older guys do look drier and especially in those areas that you named um i think i actually had quite a dry look um like my glutes came in really hard i i, I don't really know my own side but i'm really excited to see kind of where it goes this year and i'm hoping my legs and quads get leaner this time because i struggled big time with those i can almost guarantee it i can almost guarantee that's going to happen for my own legs the so i'll gain a bunch of vascularity on a cut and i'll only lose half of it when i'm massing every single time so now when i'm massed i have more veins than i used to have when i was cutting years (laughs) ago and it's amazing and the vasculature and, and the peripheral body fat is something that, that stays around for a long time. And also, if you don't balloon up like a gigantic asshole after each show, getting in shape gets easier and easier. You know, once yeah. when your top end body fat percentage is around 10 to 12, dieting for a show is an eight week process. When you mm. start out at 20 or 15% fat, getting in shape, especially for the first time, which takes life and life and limb. 
So yeah, I think that's that's another really good point. And I know you've talked you actually talked about in your Renaissance periodization article in that you kind of did a short massing cycle and were cutting for actually longer times. So you were cutting more than massing, and that was to get to that kind of lower point. And that's kind of kind of like a lower set point in a way. It's more manageable. And I know I found that after kind absolutely. of cutting. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. Uh, so we have a question that I, I mean, I'll ask it. I'm not sure how much input you'll be able to have for it. Uh, not because you won't know, but it's just, it's this sort of question from Scott Hazlitt, who's asked in terms of protein um, or whey protein, even what's best bang for your buck. He's talking about whether branded supplements are better than kind of your standard bulk supplier supplements. I don't know if you've got any kind of knowledge on that or opinion. Listen, I'll cut you the real deal. Scott was his name, Scott. Yeah, Scott Hazlitt. Scott, bro, listen, you see the shirt, Grind Nutrition right here? Bro, <laughs> I, I just got these supplements. I'm going to say, I'm going to make a little claim, okay? Those pharmaceutical companies around all these other big competitors. We're the only company that makes actual whey protein, bro. Now, listen, everyone else, it's all fake shit. Ours is real. We have our own cattle farm in Montana. We literally, we don't just treat the cows well. We put them into relationship we have like a match.com for the cows they find their life partner we play jazz music they have activities they play bingo they love their lives and they produce the best milk ever we fraction that out with way we some of the technology we use we don't even know what it does we found it on alien crash spaceship we found two <laughs> things chad wesley smith and that alien technology <laughs> that allows us to make whey protein grind bro it's the only thing it's expensive but who cares bro listen you want to grow you're going to spend the money <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so, okay, that is a fucking total joke. Hopefully, that's applied. <laughs> um, the only thing you have to worry about with uh, protein is to make sure that the company isn't uh, using a lot of filler and a lot of fake shit, um, which happens. It doesn't happen very often, but it happens enough for you to be concerned about it. So I would say go with people who design supplements, people that you trust. And go with people that um, you – companies, big companies that have a lot to lose if they make fake shit. So, for example, Optimum Nutrition. I don't work for Optimum. I never was sponsored for Optimum. I have, Optimum doesn't even know who I am. They make the fucking awesome protein. Um, True Nutrition, MyProtein.com, all those things. They have a, they've built a reputation. People have lab tested their stuff. It's always great stuff, and it's very uh, reasonably priced. You can go lower in price than that. Um, careful there's like you know ball star dick star fuel asshole brand supplements or jacqueline hyde or some fucking weird shit and you're like man this is really cheap really cheap uh i've never heard of this company you might want to be careful of that now nine times out of ten you won't get burned but you know because protein's not that expensive anyway i just go for like a quality brand um <laughs> you know i would like to toot the grindhorn as much as possible our protein is not super cheap but it's super super high quality and i promise it's all real um if you if you find that to be within your budget i guarantee it's awesome but there are a lot of other companies that make awesome protein i just wouldn't buy from really weird shady tiny companies in which the price seems too good to be true uh and, and make sure your protein's um you can eat concentrate and that's fine, but a lot of that price discrepancy is isolate versus concentrate, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, if you want isolate, if you want hydro, like that's, you know, the best way to go. And it's going to cost you more money, but it's a little bit more effective. So if you want concentrate, that's fine, especially if you're not lactose intolerant, stuff like that, that's okay. Just kind of know what's going on. 
I don't think you're making a really big mistake by buying from big trusted brands for one of those uh, optimum nutrition. Um, I was going to say you should also buy from people who rep really good stuff. They're I, the only person that came to mind with that, unfortunately, were two people, myself, and I designed all the grind supplements and Chad's an up, you know, a uh, very straight shooter. So our shit is definitely good, but I, I, and this is public knowledge now, so it's not really smack talking, you know, but someone I really trust in the industry to not BS anyone is John Meadows. And unfortunately he was involved with some other individuals recently that that's, that's exactly what they do is BS. And they lied to him about what they were putting in the supplement he designed and he was representing. And it turned out to be full of bullshit and not actually the stuff that was in there. But John has now partnered up with, I believe, Ed Koo, who's a, a friend of mine. And Ed's, Ed's a, a straight shooter, too. It's going to be all the same, the, the real shit in there now that was supposed to be in there before. But John ended up having an end-up business partnership and several friendships over that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So if there's a good person repping the protein, that's good. But, I mean, it fucking sucks, but it's not a guarantee. So um, generally speaking... Uh, go for the trusted companies. And, and, you know, the less hype, the better, I think. Like, grind with the fucking least hype of any other brand in the industry. We're like, I have fucking videos commercial, doing commercials for the protein where I'm like, it's protein. <laughs> Chad's like, say something else. I'm like, oh, there's nothing else to say. It's what it says. <laughs> and we just buy it. It's great. It works. Optimum Nutrition, even if this is, it's a multi-million dollar company, but you look through their ads and they're like, pure protein. It works. Buy some now. It, it, you see other companies, especially if it's a small company with an unknown brand that's like nuclear war protein that <laughs> has prostitutes that come in there that'll fuck you right out of the bag. You're like, what? That sounds amazing, but I, I don't know. Uh, you might not – if you're wary about your source, choose the ones that just straight shooters, respectable companies. I think you'll be okay. If you buy a Ford – car or a, or a car by fiat or another very well-known company you're probably not going to get a car without an engine but if you buy like some guy's garage who sells you a car he made who knows yeah i think that's i think that's a good test in that obviously people know you you get for what you pay for a lot of the time so if you pay more normally it is higher quality but i think not to say any no discredit grind because obviously it is going to be a high quality supplement i think just the fact that someone like optimum nutrition has been around for years you can almost guarantee because if something if they'd screwed up something would have come out by now you'd have thought so so it kind of makes a good claim that it's probably high quality 100%. There's multiple other companies that I think are just great and they're doing really good work. I'm of the opinion that I'm going to rep the brand that I helped create and that I profit from uh, to some extent, uh, even though I'm actually not cut into the direct profits of Grind quite yet. <laughs> but, um, you know, it is, it is. I'm very proud of the brand. I think we do good stuff. I'll never denigrate other effective things. Like people, you know, I've had actually people message me really strange uh, messages of like, hey, so I want to hire you as a coach or I want to go with your company or, and they'll list another person like Lane Norton or Eric Helms or somebody else. And they're like, you know, sell yourself. And I'm like, no, <laughs> those are, those are amazing guys that do really great work. You would be very good hands with them. And they're like, so what's your edge? I'm like, uh, I don't know. I do good work too. And they're like, you're not going to like try to like say how you're better than them. I'm like, I'm not even convinced I am better than them. <laughs> I mean, I'd have to lie to you if I said that. So, you know, uh, at grind, we try to do a good job, but you know, optimum nutrition, fuck man, you know what I'm saying? When I'm at the Arnold and they're giving out samples, your boy is going to be at that booth eating as many <laughs> samples as possible. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, no, yeah. That's, and it's good to hear that honesty. And I think people will appreciate that. 
And I'm, yeah, I'm the same with people who, I don't think as a personal trainer online, it's not quite the same as selling to people like as a one-on-one -on -one PT. But anyway, that's a whole nother topic and discussion. Totally. Um, next question is from Kareem Wazim, which is in a fantastic name. Um, so he's asked, uh, is there any benefit to having a post-workout uh, meal or post-workout shake? Um, hang on, he's not worded this particularly well. So let me come back. Basically, if you've had a mixed meal beforehand before uh -huh. your training session, is there any point in having that shake after the workout or are you okay? Um, nutrient timing essentially around the workout. What do you, what are your kind of guiding recommendations on this, Mike? Yeah, you know, it depends on the, the uh, quantity, quality of the, and timing of the pre-workout meal and how long the workout was and how hard it was. If the meal has lots of protein, lots of carbohydrates in it, and if it has plenty of fats as well, if you ate it relatively closely to before the workout started, and if you our workout isn't that long or super hard, you can come home and do fuck all for an hour or two and then eat your next meal. Totally cool because, you know, the shit's already in your bloodstream. Eating a meal would only just slaps right, you know, you're out a bunch of food in your stomach already, it just slaps right on top of that and it goes nowhere. So it's not like the shake goes right into your blood. So uh, on the other hand, if you ate a meal that wasn't particularly large, you ate it hours ago, your workout's super long. Uh, after your workout, you're going to want to shake and you might even have a shake during your workout. So it's a spectrum problem. It's not either or. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, like if you're still got a full stomach during your workout, don't worry about having a shake right after. But if you, um, if you finish your workout and you're like, when the fuck did they eat last time? It's time to eat for sure. So, Yeah, brilliant. And I, it's not like it's you've gone to the gym and now you're on for muscle growth. And so if you don't have that shake, you're off. It depends on a variety of kind of the total nutrition you're having in the day. Um, and like, I think a really good resource if he wants to learn more about that sort of thing, because I know you touch on it quite a lot within, well, you go over it completely within the Renaissance periodization diet book. So that's probably where you'd want to head for more information on that, I'd guess. For sure. For sure. So post-workout stuff is great. Uh, but if you have a lot of pre-workout stuff and if your workout's not super long, then I think you're in the clear. You know, So if, like, for example, I'll have a, sometimes my days, my timing is a little strange because I have to teach class. I can't really eat while I teach. And then I have jujitsu afterwards uh, or like I'll do with weights and then I'll eat and I'll do another class. Sometimes like uh, I think yesterday I had um, two protein bars uh, like 45 minutes before my jujitsu practice. After jujitsu, I showered there. I BSed with the guys for about 15 minutes. I went home and then I had my next whole food meal because those, those protein bars are still way in there on their way of releasing. But if it was a situation where I had food last time two hours before jujitsu, I wouldn't BS around. I'd probably bring a shake to jujitsu and drink it right there and then in the shower. You know, I don't even, you know what? I just bring powder and then like fill up the shake while I'm showering. I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's the ultimate, uh, ultimate recovery modality is, is drinking your shake while you're showering. That, that's true dedication. <laughs> uh, it's similar to if you really want to get drunk, you start, you know, you're getting ready for the night, you have a beer in the shower. That, that you're well on your way. Nice. Yeah. Uh, pre-workout. Oh, wait, no, that's a uh, pre-drinks, but yeah. Uh, so sure. that's pre-pre-pre-drinks. You 
you're getting ready for your pre-drinks. You got to get ready for pre-drinks. You can't be sober during pre-drinking. Because here's the thing. People are like, oh, let's start pre-drinking. But that means they're coming over to your house. You have to socialize. And listen, let's be honest. I don't have any social skills. I'm afraid of people and in general, a social interaction. And I need to be drunk to talk to anyone at all. So I pre-drink for the pre-drinking. And you know, sometimes, Steve, I want to warp your mind a little bit today. Sometimes I pre-drink for the pre-drink because even the pre-drink gets me nervous. So I'll just drink all day long. And then by the time the party shows up, I'm passed out my own vomit it's really fun i have a great social life <laughs> oh dear i don't even have a good response to that you're super sense you can do what you want that's that can be my response agreed. to anything crazy agreed <laughs> um so we have a good question from uh hang on let me read this from brett hook who has asked he said he's recently tried cluster sets for his squats um and he said he typically clusters three with 20 seconds rest, three, 20 seconds rest, three. So a total of nine reps per cluster. And he feels like it allows him to have better form. He can have a brief hole, uh, pause in the hole. And he's saying, is he compromising hypertrophy or strength using these cluster sets instead of just straight sets? So rather than doing the three and then pausing and having a rest and then three and then pausing and then three and then pausing, he could just go for a straight set of nine or kind of eight to 10 reps. No, not a ton. I think it's fine. Um, the only critique I could make about it is that it needlessly complicates the situation. Um, for example, if I was to be squatting relatively heavy and I did that, between sets, if you leave it on, it's further interfering with blood flow back to your uh, heart and everything, and it, it makes your legs stiffer. Um, certainly less apt to generate force. If you take it off, that's extra effort. You know, taking a belt off is kind of hard sometimes. Um, and it's extra work you're doing. Why the fuck aren't you just, when you put it on, just fucking rock out all the, all the fucking stuff. So when I get my belt on, I get my head right, and my technique is good, I just like to fucking pound out all the reps that I need in that set. If for him, he feels like he is actually better prepared and better to execute, uh, then that's totally cool. Just make sure you're not BSing yourself and you're actually doing a better job like that. Um, if you can really have better technique and better force production and all the reps doing that, I think that's great. Um, other than that, uh, you know, uh, I think for th things outside of weightlifting, and weightlifting cluster sets are pretty important because there's not much of a belt situation. The setup's pretty easy. Um, and it's good to have high forces, high velocities, high powers. So cluster sets work really well for building up volumes because, um, yeah, for, nobody does sets of 10 in a snatch, but you could do three, 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 three for a while. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in a powerlifting setting with squats, benches, deadlifts, uh, the setup is a little bit more intense. Um, you know, the low bar squat setup is considerable uh, compared to a snatch setup. Snatch setup, you know, you see you guys in weightlifting, they'll set up, set up, boom, they're gone, right? And especially after a couple of snatches, it all feels pretty good. Mm -hmm. The belt might be a tiny little neoprene belt or nothing at all. With powerlifting, I mean, you, you set up for a low bar before. Shit is like a fucking, yeah. this is a religion, you know? You're like, I gotta get my feet here and fucking get the bar checked in. And setting up sometimes hurts your elbows. And sometimes, you know, I don't know if you have this, Steve, where like setting up for the lift blows, the lift fine, then you rack it, and you like kind of unfurl your, your yeah, arch, yeah. and you're like, ah! <laughs> Ah, and like the less time you can set up, the better. So uh, there's that. So, so Brett, you just got to be honest with yourself about if it actually makes your workouts go better. And if it does, more power to you. I don't think you're interfering with much of anything at all. Mm -hmm. 
I think if anything, you've made a good case for when you're doing something like a low bar squat, not having to necessarily kind of lock out and then go straight away. Maybe you can gather yourself, go again. And that's kind of like a kind of a pause within the set, but not as much as having 20 seconds off. Totally, totally. And I guess your, your session is going to take a lot longer if you're taking all those 20 second rests all the time, but that's another point. Totally. Yeah. Agreed. In that, in that example, your session is going to take longer, but, um, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's a complicated question. I, I, 20 seconds is an interesting amount of time to take, um, in the deadlift, I can see it working in yeah. the bench press. No way in the squat. I have difficulty understanding how that would work because 20 seconds is just the wrong amount of time for me personally. Um, I'm most fucked up after 20 seconds. If you give me 40, I'll be useful. If you give me 10, I can just stand under the bar for 10 seconds. But 20, fuck, I'm just like 20 seconds. I'm like, ah, ah, fuck's going on. They're like, go again. I'm like, wait, wait, hold on, why? <laughs> right, so if it's good for him, I think it's, it's just fine. Cool. Um, so my next question is from Mark Newcomb, who obviously used to co-host the, the podcast. And actually, I'm, I'm coaching Mark at the moment. Cool. And I'm interested in this answer because it's very individual to him. It might help one or two people out. But essentially, um, after his kind of illness, he's lost quite a lot of strength in his legs. Um, and he can't do as much volume as he used to do in the past. And so he's kind of like fighting a never-ending battle with his legs. And he's wondering if, because he's using less intensity, less volume, can he still progress with where he is and actually see any good results? Can he fight recession or is it all just kind of a bit of a losing battle for himself? I don't know if it's if you need any more context about the situation or if that's enough to kind of give you one to answer. Uh is he currently in a very catabolic state in, in which the recession is inevitable? Uh, he is in a dieting. He's dieting right now, yeah. He's probably going to gain leg mass throughout his diet because once you reach a certain uh, ability level, especially with muscle size, it doesn't really matter much how you lose it unless you're excising actual motor neurons, which is unlikely. Um, you're going to be primed with satellite cell infiltration and motor neuron operation to regain it back much more quickly than it came in. So what he's going through is quite a bit of frustration that it's not back immediately, but it doesn't come back immediately. But I think he's going to be able to stabilize his leg performance and actually increase his performance throughout most of his cutting phase. I think once he starts massing in the next massing phase, it's going to skyrocket for him. So, you know, Mark, I, I was like, uh, I wouldn't be too, I wouldn't be too upset about it. We all encounter difficulties in our lives. We all get setbacks and injuries and illnesses. But the good news is, is the body's ability to return back to what it used to consider homeostasis is pretty impressive. So all your leg gains are coming back to you. They're absolutely coming back. Uh, and all you got to do is be patient and apply proper training principles to continue to work. And you apply the proper training principles and you just get much faster gains than anyone else who had never been to that size before. And that's it. Cool. Yeah, I think it's it's a difficult situation for him just because it's it's a complicated thing that there aren't many people that know kind of what he should be expecting in terms of his knee pain and things. And if people aren't aware, it's kind of cancer. Uh, Mark survived cancer, so he's done incredibly well to get where he is, and he's actually got tremendous quad development as he's, as as people go. So um, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm interested, and in, we're we're obviously applying the principles, and we're just going to see where it goes and kind of yeah. just make progress where we can. Um, so next question from Ben Shepard, um, who has asked if there's a particular best book, person, website, or source where you can actually truly learn the insides and outs of programming, um, which 
yeah do you have anyone like any way where you could ever possibly learn the insides and outs of programming from a source yeah dog me 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 no, i'm just kidding that's fucked up um, <laughs> i would say a good journey into learning programming begins with a visit to the juggernaut training systems youtube channel with lectures by mostly chad wesley smith chad has done a great job for the scientific principles of strength training the book we co-authored he did a great job of breaking it down into easy to hear 15 to 30 minute videos about each training principle once you get those you're going to know a lot of stuff after you listen to those, he's got a bunch of sample program videos where he actually develops a program for different kinds of athletes, specifically powerlifters in different phases, peaking, strength, hypertrophy, etc. After you watch those, you can be well on your way. Then if you want deeper insights, buy the book, Scientific Principles of Strength Training. Read it probably twice because it's fairly complicated. You're going to know a ton of shit. And after that, you're well on your way to start experimenting on your own and picking apart sources here and there. Um, if you want a more simple view of programming that is more general, a really good start, Chad's videos are a good start, and then the Muscle and Strength Pyramids by Eric Helms are great, and uh, Greg Knuckles' Art and Science of, uh, of uh, what is it, lifting. Uh, it's just lifting, I, I think. think. Art, is, yeah. Art and Science of, uh, of Lifting uh, is really good. Depending on your love development, you may already know some of those were the generalities. Those books, I usually point people into the direction of, okay, I don't really know anything about programming. Where do I start? Well, I point them to those books. And they go, okay, well, those books are great. What else do I do? I go, okay, Chad's videos. And they go, okay, those videos are amazing. And uh, I really want to deepen my knowledge. Scientific principles. If you can absorb and understand everything in scientific principles, you know more about strength training than 99% of the people in the fitness industry, I would say. Um, and after that, you want to learn more, you go straight to periodization by Bompa and Hoff and super training uh, and, and all that shit because then you'll be very equipped to, uh, to understand what they're saying. So, mm. No, I think that's really good. And if I can give a personal kind of insight into it because I was probably in kind of Ben's position and I was trying to learn about programming for a very long time and it, it was all very kind of confusing for a long time. And I did a lot of the, 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 the textbooks that you're talking about, like the Bompa and Hoff and super training. And I kind of was way in over my head. There was a lot of technical jargon and things that just didn't make sense. And now after going and having read your book, and I have read that several times, I may have read it more than twice now, and talking to yourself has helped me tremendously. And then obviously I've, I've got Eric Cowan's Muscle Strength Pyramids. I agree, they're really good as well. And having I've even watched a lot of the Juggernaut videos, it just all cements it. And then going back to these textbooks now, which you're saying kind of go to at the advanced level, everything makes a lot more sense and I start picking things and I'm like, okay, I can link that to elements of what I've learned from your books. But for me, your ebook was the best I found in terms of just understanding things and getting those principles. And then that allowed me to really understand successful programs, why they were successful. And then yeah. I have to say the next stage is then experimenting on yourself. And if you've got clients using it to develop their programs and it all gets a lot better and easier from there. Yeah, I, I'm super proud and uh, James and Chad and I are super proud of scientific principles because it really is a kind of like a unified theory of strength training. <laughs> um, and it, it, in like a, any other theory, it doesn't give you direct answers, but it allows you to have the architecture with which to make predictions and design your own programs. So 
you know, uh, for example, you know, supply and demand theory in economics doesn't tell you which stocks are the ones to buy and which stocks are the ones to sell or how to run your business. But it tells you, okay, if you want to run your business well, you better have supply and demand checked off as something you've considered. Is, is there a demand for your product? No. Well, fuck, dude, that sucks. You better address that. Can you supply the demand? No. Well, that really sucks. You got to address that. So it's like a checklist you run through. And yeah. If you meet all the checklists of the theory, then you're doing a good job. And then you're going to have success in whatever kind of endeavor you're doing. And just the same way with scientific principles, um, it's, it's, it's kind of like the uh, – the blueprints for program design, even though there is no program in the book. So once you read it and understand it, you start to design programs and you go, oh, oh, I see how this all fits together. And you look at other people's programs and go, oh, wow, this should be here and not there. That's all wrong. Or this is really good. And here's the following reasons. So we were super proud of that book because it's, it's kind of the, um, in the strength world, I think it's one of the more ultimate, uh, teach a man to fish versus giving him a fish kind of things where, um, you know, we weren't really interested and Chad has a lot of other books where he has a bunch of sample programs. So if you want to look at something like the juggernaut method, um, and Chad's newest book, um, uh, which I, the title escapes me at the moment, but a th thoughtful pursuit of strength. And he's got yeah, some, yeah, it's some elements of scientific principles. And then the, the programs he's designed based off of that There's plenty of sample programs in there, but, um, you know, and the sample programs are great. But they're only great because Chad wrote them with an understanding of the scientific principles. <laughs> um, and uh, they're only going to make sense why they're great if you know the scientific principles uh, of strength training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to. And I was going to bring up the teacher man to fish rather than give him fish. I was actually thinking it in my head before you said it. So that's hilarious. And for sure. yeah, I've got the, the thoughtful pursuit. And um, it has different programs for different sports in there as well, which is really interesting. Um, just a, a great kind of aside to your textbook. Um, so I've got a question from Preston Rind, who is asked, uh, during a mass phase, do you periodize your nutrition microcycle to microcycle? So week to week, do you, we change any kind of carbohydrates, calories, fats, protein, or does it stay generally level throughout? Periodized. We increase carbohydrates as the week progress because we need to consume more calories to keep gaining weight. As you gain more weight, more weight gain is more difficult. In addition to that, we eat more carbohydrates because the volume of activity is higher. So, yep, a carbohydrate load goes up week to week to week on average. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the carbohydrate, do you have like a set number for maybe like a number of sets that you increase by or is it just like uh, a percentage? I don't yet know. I uh, haven't gotten that precise but hopefully one day. Uh, and it also is, it depends on what kind of sets of what, you know, sets of squats, it's going to count sets of bicep curls. I don't know. It's like a gram of carbs or something for extra sets. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, so it's definitely, uh, uh, I don't know if I can be that exact with it, but you know, when we increase carbs, it's, I'll tell you, it's usually by 50 grams at a time uh, per day. I don't mess around with 10 grams more per day because that's within the realm of uh, ability to be precise. You know? So, um, you know, I'll start, I'll start a massing phase with, uh, 500 grams of carbs per day and Broderick <laughs> had me work up to 700 grams of carbs per day in this last mass phase. And, uh, fuck. That's a lot of carbs, but, uh, and that's what's what trying to minimize fats as well for, for reasons outside the scope of this discussion. But, uh, that blows uh, to some extent, <laughs> it's a, a lot of sushi, <laughs> yeah. not much else. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they, carbs have to go up and up and up and then that'll be uh, related to training volumes and also related to calories that you need <laughs> to continue to increase.
And I guess would, because if people are doing, getting their weekly average for their body weight, would that be enough to be able to identify that you need to, or is it to delay that kind of change in weight week to week? Um, yeah. Average weekly body weight can inform carbohydrate needs. Yeah. If, you're, if your weight's going up well and you're feeling energetic in your workouts, you're eating enough carbs, especially in a mass yeah. phase. If your weight's stalling, yeah, you need to eat more carbs. Cool. Yeah, I think something I haven't, uh, I haven't really done much is I normally, I personally normally have like a intake and then haven't changed it much throughout microcycles unless the weight is telling me it needs to be upped. But I think That's sometimes, a... sorry, I was just going to, sometimes I feel like you could probably be a bit more assertive with it potentially like you're, like it sounds like you are. Maybe just a little bit more assertive, but it still has to be a feedback mechanism. Awesome. Yeah, I think like anything when with diet related, it was always feedback and body weight is a great marker for feedback. So Absolutely. that's awesome. Time for one more question. You bet. Cool. So we've got um, Kevin Corley has asked, what is the best way to determine an estimated training max to base percentages off, off uh, for exercises that you've never done before? So I think this was actually in relation to the the physique templates by you guys, there were some exercises you wanted to do. We'd never done them before. And I know at the start of those mesocycles, you have like an estimated 10 rep max. He's kind of saying, how, how would he go about kind of estimating that if he has no idea? Take a week and in the first half of the week, you're going to do every single one of those new exercises. You're going to pyramid up and a warm up until the weight feels pretty heavy. Something you think is heavy enough to go for between five and 10 reps. You do it to an almost failure just for one set. And then you write down how many reps you got. And now you got a real good estimate because if you got seven reps and it's 100 pounds, maybe 80 pounds is going to be your 10 rem. Uh, once you have those, then you take the half of the week after to deload. And then you start the physique template after that with your new numbers plugged in. Cool thing is, uh, you just have to get really approximate values because, as you well know, the loading paradigm is not very specific. So, mm -hmm. As long as it's less than maybe 20 reps and, and more than, you know, eight reps per set, you're growing. So uh, not really a, a need to be super, super precise. We just don't want people to really, really fuck up. So, oh, yeah, I can do this for, for 12 and it's actually five. You know, that's bad. Or, oh, yeah, this was a 10 RM and it's actually a 22 RM. That's not great. Um, and then uh, on the other, the flip side is um, – you can adjust week to week if you really fucked up. Next week, you can bump the weights down or up uh, just to make sure that they're uh, about in that realm. Mm -hmm. And the last thing is uh, know that the exercise order is going to matter. And that's just something that comes with as to how much um, your abilities are reduced with exercise order. So bench press is done first. You can do 100 kilos for 10 reps. After four chest exercises, that may be for five reps <laughs> instead of 10 so uh, know that and adjust the loads accordingly as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I think a lot of people get a bit kind of lost when they're trying to estimate those sort of things or estimate kind of a weight to use within a rep range even. Um, but normally, like you said, you can warm up to it and it works itself out throughout the mesocycle as long as you're kind of having checking over things, you understand what sort of repetitions you're aiming for in general. Um, you can make those manipulations as long as you're not, yeah, like you said, wildly off at... <laughs> really low or really high and away from it so i think that's a great answer hey Mike? Oh, sorry. Still, what, yeah 
<laughs> cool. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I caught that. Yeah, as long as you're not really wildly off, it's not a big deal. You can always make little adjustments as you go. Um, in that situation where you're like, okay, if I mess, it's in my 11 RM instead of my 10 RM, I'm going to fucking die. It's not going to work. It's not like that, no. And actually, on a related note, is there, do you ever actually personally test for like your 10 rep max or do any testing weeks at all? Or do you just, because I, I tend not to, and I just go off my training notes and look back at kind of. I go off my, I go off my training. Ne needlessly testing is time you could have spent training. And if you're training, especially I'll tell you what a, a very good test is. Your last week before deload, when you're going one rep shy of failure, there's your test. So if you did 180 kilos for 12 reps, your 10 RMs of 190. I mean, it's really not that complicated. Mm -hmm. So I don't test. Um, I know very few people that test nowadays. Usually you just derive those numbers from training. Testing gets you a level of specificity, a precision that you don't need. That mm -hmm. makes sense? Um, it, it, it's like uh, weighing your food to the exact gram on the scale versus taking a packet of pasta out and you know it's 100 grams. 102 grams. So fucking what? <laughs> right? If it's 200 grams, it's a problem. But when you're doing sets of five with 150K in the bench, what is the chance that your 5RM is actually 100? None. What is the chance that it's 180? None. And then between those real small ranges where you think it is, deviation in your strength anyway. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, exactly. Uh, so if you're honest about assessment based on the reps you are getting in training, you don't have to you don't have to do rep tests that's nonsense and when you're auto regulating everything like you said you could be feeling really good on one day when you tested or you could be feeling really bad but 100%. when you're auto regulating all the time it kind of it works itself out like you just said so yeah brilliant. 100% awesome well i want to thank you mike again for doing a brilliant q a um i know the audience really value these so thank you so much for doing it and we have a bunch more questions to get to another time which is exciting and i'm so glad that we can bring these to people every kind of two weeks um so yeah thank you thanks for having me on steve these are awesome i love answering all those questions and so many good questions all the time and a couple of really shitty ones but i'm not going to say which ones those were <laughs> <laughs> all fun and jokes but seriously they're all great and uh we'll see you in two weeks for sure Awesome. Yeah. Cheers, guys, for listening in and watching. Take care.